Are you thinking of a career working for the United Nations or its agencies around the world? Is it your dream to serve in your country's foreign ministry, but you don't know where to start? The Center for United Nations Studies at the University of Buckingham in the UK is offering a new, fully online Master's in United Nations Studies. The degree can be taken full-time over one year or part-time over two. There's no need to apply for a visa. And the fees are more affordable than the traditional residential master's degree, which also remains open to potential new students. Graduates will gain a firm grounding in the work of the WHO, UN peacekeeping operations, and the UN's sustainable development goals. They will also learn about global political communication, develop negotiating skills through role-playing exercises, and write a dissertation on a UN-related topic of their choice. Along the way, they'll have access to mentors with first-hand experience in the UN, such as Program Director Mark Seddon, a former speechwriter to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and Lord Mark Mollick brown a former UN Deputy Secretary General. Applications for January and fall 2021 are now open. To find out more about the program, click the link in the episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, we look at Tunisia's diplomacy 10 years after the Arab Spring Revolution. We speak with Tunisia's ambassador to the UN, Tarek Ledeb, as well as Youssef Sharif, a Tunisian political analyst specializing in North African affairs. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Tunisia is the North African country where the Arab Spring began, a regional revolution that shook the Middle East in 2011. In December 2010, Mohamed Bouazizi, a street vendor in southern Tunisia, set himself on fire in response to the confiscation of his wares and harassment and humiliation inflicted on him by local officials. His self-immolation became the symbol of the tremendous discontent against the Tunisian government at the time, and people took to the streets all over the country to ask Tunisia's long-standing president and strongman, Zine el-Abidine Ben Ali, to resign. A month later, on January 14, 2011, Ben Ali flew to Saudi Arabia in exile, giving in to the people in Tunisian streets and sparking a regional wave of pro-democracy protests in the Middle East and North Africa. Ten years later, Tunisia is considered the only success story among the Arab Spring demonstrations, the only democracy emerging from the 2011 movement. Here's Ambassador Ladeb on this. January holds uh, a very special significance for Tunisia since it coincides with the 10th anniversary of the revolution of freedom and dignity in Tunisia that laid the foundations of our democratic experience and gave Tunisia an added 
impetus to its role on the regional and international scenes as an active advocate of the United Nations Charter, international law principles, human rights, and multilateralism and peace, preventive diplomacy, all these values. Tunisia will celebrate the 10th anniversary of its revolution while also being president of the Security Council in January. So we're looking at how Tunisia's diplomacy has evolved. While Tunisia is now considered a free country by the Freedom House, the organization says obstacles remain to fully consolidate democracy in the country. The other challenge for Tunisia is that it is one of the only democracies in a region dominated by autocracies, and most of its allies are not human rights promoters. Here's Youssef Sharif, the director of Columbia University's Global Center in Tunis, Tunisia's capital. January 14th is a national holiday in Tunisia. The official narrative is to celebrate democracy and celebrate the end of dictatorship. Of course, the mood in Tunisia in general is not necessarily celebratory because of the economic issues, because of the political bickering that is poisoning political life in the country and political polarization. The mood is not necessarily celebratory, but at an official level, Tunisians will be celebrating with flags and with maybe receptions, I don't know, with COVID, if they do that or not. Now, one thing, however, where Tunisia needs to be very cautious, it is part of the community of democracies, but it is also close to dictatorships such as Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, Turkey, you name it. So the words about democracy and about the importance of democracy will probably be limited to Tunisia and there will be nothing about Tunisia wants to spread democracy. Tunisia's alliances and identity are not defined by its people, Arab and African descent, and its democratic values. The country is an active member of the Arab League, but also the African Union. On the Security Council, it's part of the informal A3 plus 1 alliance. The group of three non-permanent African members and the small Caribbean island of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So we asked Ambassador Ladeb how challenging it was for him to balance the interests of both the Arab League and the African Union. Before being posted at the UN, he represented Tunisia in Arab countries such as Oman, Egypt, Iraq and Syria. We are assuming this responsibility of representing the Arab world and the African continent, and we have been elected on the African continent. These two dimensions in our uh, identity are the two main pillars of our uh, identity, and we have excellent relations with all the Arab countries and with all the uh, African countries. And so the coordination with them is going very well. We don't have any uh, problems in coordinating both for the Arab issues or the African issues. We are coordinating also with the two observer missions of the African Union and the League of Arab States here in New York. Youssef Sharif has a slightly different assessment of Tunisia's alignment on the council and in the world, and how it's changed since the country has become a democracy. Sharif sees Tunisia's interests in the council as aiming to defend democracy while avoiding creating tensions with its allies in Africa or the Middle East. 
by straddling both regions, Tunisia's pretty much taking as low a profile as possible. I think the priority of most Tunisian diplomats was to avoid problems at all costs and to remain friends with everyone. So you rightly mentioned the African Union, the uh, League of Arab States, and these are unions and leagues and organizations that are to a large extent formed by dictatorships and uh, that defend sovereignty, yes, but also they defend their sovereignty when it comes to breaching human rights and democracy. So this is the delicate position of Tunisia. It's a country that belongs to these two worlds, but it's also a member in the community of democracy. But I think, therefore, what Tunisia is doing is to avoid as much as possible finding itself in problematic situations where it has to vote maybe against Egypt or against Uganda or, or other countries that belong to the same pool where Tunisia is, while at the same time trying to be aligned with European Union, with some democracies, when it comes to broader positions about stopping wars or spreading education and, um, and things like that. So we haven't seen Tunisia taking a stance on Hong Kong, for instance, or taking stance on some of the human rights violations that took place in uh, the African continent in recent months when it comes to elections. But we've seen Tunisia at the Security Council defending a motion that asks to stop wars everywhere, I mean, not even naming and shaming countries. And I think this is an old strategy of the Tunisian diplomacy that tries to befriend everyone and to be non-aligned and to try to get benefits from all sides uh, when possible. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. And while Tunisia wants its term on the council to be as smooth as possible, it has already been quite challenging. Since its term started a year ago, the country has had two changes in ambassadors, one in February and one last September, with both ambassadors being suddenly recalled without much explanation. Ambassador Ladeb became permanent representative in September after his predecessor, Kais Kaptani, was sent home after only five months in the top job in New York. When it happened, Ladeb was promoted from deputy permanent representative to ambassador. It was a smooth transition. It was very easy for me 
because as a DPR, I was used to almost all the issues on the agenda items of the Council and the work of the UN in general. As you know, the DPRs are involved almost in all the issues dealt with in the Council. So the transition from DPR to PR was not difficult for me, especially that I was chargé for a period that led me to get in contact with all the PRs. Last February, Tunisia's ambassador at the time, Monsef Bati, was summoned home too. There were some reports that it happened because Tunisia was circulating a pro-Palestine resolution in the Security Council, calling U.S. President Trump's Middle East peace plan a breach of international law. And the U.S. pressured Tunisia against the move. But for Sharif, the turnover also reflected changes inside the Tunisian government. There was the story of the pressures from the U.S., but then there were other stories that uh, it was more about disagreements in Tunisia between diplomats and between the presidency and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and so on. But I don't have the exact details why the first ambassador was sacked. And uh, I don't know why the second one was sacked exactly. But what I know is that the political disagreements that um, take place in Tunisia and the fact that uh, there were so many um, government shuffles. I mean, you're talking about two changes of permanent representatives, but also during the same year, uh, there were two changes of prime ministers in Tunisia to show you how complicated the situation is on the ground. And so that indeed affected the work of the UN mission in New York and didn't allow for a lot of work for this mission when they have so such a quick turnover. And despite the challenges and bumps in the road, Tunisia made it to its council presidency with priorities that it wants to highlight in January. The last time Tunisia was on the council was from 2000 to 2001. Needless to say, Tunisia was a different country back then, sitting in a very different council. Tunisia was part of the council's response to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And this time around, counterterrorism is high on Tunisia's list of priorities, especially considering Tunisia chairs the council's counterterrorism committee. So about the 1373 resolution, of course, as we are the chair of the CTC, the Counterterrorism Committee, and as it coincides with the 20th anniversary of the adoption of that resolution and the establishment of the CTC, we will organize a signature event on the international cooperation in countering terrorism. 20 years since the adoption of the resolution, the achievements and the challenges. It will be a high-level event. It will be on the level of Minister of Foreign Affairs. While Tunisia has decided what it will promote as president of the council, there are also the unpredictable events that it will have to deal with. One is likely to be Libya. In late December, Bulgarian diplomat Nikolai Mladenov, the UN coordinator for the Middle East peace process, was supposed to become the next UN envoy for Libya. It had taken months of negotiations with the Security Council for the UN Secretary General to secure the post for Mladenov. But then Mladenov suddenly declined the job, citing family reasons. Tunisia borders Libya, and Tunisia recognizes that, In the words of Ambassador Ladeb, 
The stability and security of Libya is the stability and security of Tunisia. There will be a council meeting on Libya this month, so we asked Ambassador Ledeb how he's planning to approach it. Libya is a top priority for Tunisia since it's our neighbor. The two populations have excellent and historic deep-rooted relations. Tunisia did never close its borders with Libya. The positive developments in Libya in relation with the final ceasefire agreement that was signed, I think, on the 23rd of October, a political dialogue forum that held uh, its in-person meeting in Tunis, and the 5 plus 5 military uh, committee meetings, positive meetings, created an important momentum now in Libya that should be sustained to align the rails, uh, let's say, to achieve a political settlement uh, of the crisis and to put an end to the suffering of the Libyan people and to restore peace and stability and, of course, to preserve Libya's sovereignty and dependence and territorial integrity. This important but still fragile progress should be continued through the engagement of all the Libyan parties in political process. The nomination of the special envoy, it was very, very important step because this momentum and this progress made on the political process must be continued. The Security Council has agreed, I think all the 15 member states have agreed on the new structure of the UN mission. And Mr. Mladinov, who was appointed as a UN envoy for Libya, said that he would not accept the role for personal and family reasons. So it's important that this process continues and that the Secretary General choose a new envoy to accompany this process. And Mr. Reisidon Zininga from Zimbabwe was appointed as Assistant Secretary General and Coordinator to ANSMIL. I think this also can help the process to go forward. We also asked Ambassador Ladeb if he shared the frustration of other African members on the Council regarding the long, arduous and complicated nomination process for the Libyan envoy, which has to be done all over again. We don't have a frustration. It's not maybe the appropriate word to describe that, but there's a momentum in Libya and there's a people suffering and we want security, peace be restored as soon as possible. And we want that our brothers, the Libyans, can achieve a sustainable peace and sustainable political settlement for the crisis. The choice of the special envoy, as I told you, it's the prerogative of the Secretary General in coordination and in consultation with the member states. And as the Libyans agree, we agree on all what our brothers, the Libyans, agree, and we are always with the compromise and with the consensus. Western Sahara is also an issue that could come up this month. The U.S. recently recognized Morocco's sovereignty over the disputed territory in exchange for Morocco's recognition of Israel. 
Germany called a special meeting on the issue in December, but no such request has been made this month for a follow-up. And Sharif says it's an issue Tunisia may wish to avoid. Western Sahara is a North African and Maghrebi issue, but I see hardly Tunisia taking a position there because from one side, it has Algeria next door and the Tunisian leadership is quite close to the Algerian leadership and there are a lot of national security interests that are shared between the two countries. So in a way, Tunisia should be taking Algeria's position. But also, Tunisia has very good ties with Morocco, also with with the US and with other countries that recognize Western Sahara as a Moroccan dependency. So in that regard, I think Tunisians will, I think, avoid to have the Western Sahara issue posed during their mandate. Tunisia's young democracy remains fragile, and the country's priorities on the council are pretty much to avoid making waves and to offend no one. But Sharif remains hopeful that without actively trying to export its democracy, Tunisia can serve as a model for its neighbors and allies for future democratic change. I think there is always a hope in the region that democracy will advance. And I think the fact that there were revolutions in Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Sudan last year shows that the Arab Spring is not something that ended in 2011. It continues. It was a wake-up call to many leaders in the region, but they didn't get it, and therefore the revolution continues. So the democratic example that Tunisia sets is there to be hopefully followed by other countries. Tunisia does not have the power to export that democratic model, but I think it can be a model and other countries, other peoples, can take the example of Tunisia. And until today, I think among civil society activists and young people who demonstrate against oppression in the Arab world, Tunisia remains an example with all its flaws. Democracy in Tunisia allowed Tunisians to be full participants in the civic and political life of their country, even if to complain and to say that they're not happy and that their situation did not improve. But They are there, they can express their voice, which is not the case of other populations in the Arab world. And again, I mean, the revolutions that we've seen last year in some Arab countries show that that model of street protests and reversing dictatorship, that model still exists. Many still long for that. And I think we'll see more of these revolutions in the future. That's it for our show. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. Ivana Ramirez is our intern. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Passblue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.